If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke 15, where we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 13, unlike it says, I, my sermon got so huge I had to cut it in half, so I'll add one more to the series, <laughs> however long that's going to be. <laughs> C.H. Spurgeon in his uh, morning and evening devotion for January 17th, that was uh, just uh, recently here, talks about, quotes the first half of 2 Samuel 11.2, which says, Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house, wanting to be discreet. Spurgeon didn't quote the other half of the verse, which we all know what it is, right? No, we don't. Um, At his day in the 1800s, people were a little bit more biblically literate, and so he only needed to quote that half. Uh, The rest of the verse says, and from the roof, he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. Now, do you know what he was doing up on the roof? It becomes pretty apparent that this began David's slide into sin with Bathsheba. Spurgeon then comments, quote, at that hour, David saw Bathsheba. We are never out of reach of temptation, both at home and abroad, when we are liable to meet with allurements to evil. The morning opens with peril and the shades of evening find us still in jeopardy. They are well kept. From well kept whom God keeps, but woe unto those who go forth into the world or even dare to walk their own house unarmed. Those who think themselves secure are more exposed to danger than any others. The armor bearer of sin is self-confidence. David should have engaged in fighting the Lord's battles instead of which he tarried at Jerusalem and gave himself up to luxurious repose for he arose from his bed at evening time idleness and luxury are the devil's jackals and find him abundant prey in stagnant waters noxious creatures swarm and neglected soil soon yields a dense tangle of weeds and briars oh for the constraining love of jesus to keep us active and useful when i see king the king of israel sluggishly leaving his couch at the close of the day and falling at once into temptation let me take warning and set holy watchfulness to guard the door end quote david was the sweet psalmist of israel david wrote the bulk of the book of psalms He was the man after God's own heart. He is hailed as one of the most godly people in the Bible. And yet even David, when he let his guard down, fell into such heinous sins that his whole life was not not enough to suffer for them. And we've all done things like this. We've all made bad decisions in a moment of weakness, started down a dark road, suffered for the consequences. We all, like sheep, go astray. Each turns to his own way. And it seems sometimes necessary and even compelling that we sin. There are times when, you know, I tell myself, I'm not going to eat that. And then after six or seven walk-bys, all of a sudden I have one in my mouth. 
And then I, I just try to think about that. What happened? Well, I knew it was there and it was just a really soft, chewy chocolate chip cookie, but I don't need that, but it looks good. And then pretty soon I smell it and I keep watching and little glances of it. And pretty soon there's an erosion that occurs. And pretty soon I've got one in my mouth followed by eight more with a glass of milk. (laughs) I know you've probably never experienced anything like that. But sometimes we just come to the conclusion that self-restraint is bad. That morals are bad, that God's law is bad. And we kind of just scratch and claw to pursue with every inch of our fiber the sins which God hates. And this is especially true of young people. There's a lot of young people who somewhere between their teens and mid-twenties kind of just lose their brain and just decide that the goal of life is to sin as much as they can, rebel as much as they can, and plunge themselves into vice as much as they can. They fry their brains on drugs sometimes. They crash their car drunk, maybe kill somebody at other times. They defile their conscience. They lose their virginity. They followed bad company. They get thrown into jail and they learn some very hard lessons. And so how do we avoid that? Well, there's two ways you can learn. Well, the world tells you it's always best to learn by experience. And that's fine if you're, you know, rebuilding a car engine or making a cake. But when it comes to moral issues, experience is never the best way to learn. It's always best to learn by wisdom. That is somebody else's mistake. Sometimes we just want to try it ourselves, but when it comes to those things God hates, we should never want to try it ourselves. The parable that we're looking at this morning, the parable of the prodigal son, is a huge lesson to us in so many areas that it's going to take us multiple weeks to just go through it. But I think you will see just how dense it is. It is it is an entire uh, theology of man, sin, redemption, salvation, and, and just a, a light and dark contrast that is just really incredible. And, and as we get into the parable, we're just going to see when, when we get to the good part, it is so good. But the reason it's so good is because the bad part is so bad. And we're going to look at that part this morning. The really bad part. The downer part, his slide into sin. So if you have your Bibles, look with me at Luke 15. Follow along as I read down through verse 13. Luke 15, 11 through 13. And he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. This morning, we just want to look at the prodigal's sinful decisions. His rebellious choices 
that caused him to be as lost as lost could be. Keep in mind that this parable was directed at the scribes and Pharisees who at the beginning of the chapter in verses 1 and 2 grumbled because Jesus received sinners. And so the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son are all directed at them to confront them. But the parable of the prodigal son does that and much more as we shall see. From verses 11 through 13, I want to show you six deceptions that sinful thinking will try to deceive you into believing six lies that sin tells you to believe so that you will wander away from God and towards misery. Now, I need to just talk about sin a little bit because sometimes people just don't know what sin is. If you've talked to people and shared the gospel with people, you encounter people sometimes. And sometimes it's shocking. If you've grown up in the church and you're, you know, you know the Bible and you understand what sin is. Sometimes it's shocking when you say, well, you know, um, you know, Jesus died for your sins. And they kind of look at you like, who do you think I am? I've never killed anybody. I'm not an axe murderer. I've never robbed a bank. And in their mind, in the minds of most people, sin is only those huge things that people do, which, of course, very few people do. And so everybody else is not a sinner. But according to God, sin is lawlessness. Sin is to doubt. Sin is to not live in faith. Sin is to not live for the glory of God. Sin is to do anything in thought or deed that deviates from the perfect standard of God's will to any degree. Any degree to which you do not love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength according to his word, to any degree in thought or deed is a sin. A few days ago, I was in this one business and there was a small child that um, uh, was probably about two or three, very little, um, wanted something. And the mother said no. And before the mother could kind of end the O on the O, that child launched into a blood curdling scream that caused everybody to kind of wince away. It was like an implosion. And everybody kind of just kind of went like this. You know, I know I did. I kind of tilted my head down because it was so shrill. And the child was screaming in rage and then just stopped in a moment and went with his mother. And I just thought, whoa. That was like a like a, a verbal bomb. I don't know. I'd never heard so much noise come out of such a small box. <laughs> and what that child was saying to his mother is, I do not want you to tell me what to do. I do not want you controlling me. I want what I want and I want it now. Right? And that's really what we all say. But when you grow up, you learn to do all that inside. <laughs> we have our tantrums inside. You know, maybe you see a little stiffening of the jaw, clenching of the jaw. You know, you see the the fist clench or whatever. But, you know, we do it our own way. A little bit more sanctified, but to God, not any more sanctified. 
We were all born sinners into this world. We're all descendants of Adam, who was the first sinner. We are conceived in sin, born in sin, go stray from our youth. Our hearts are desperately sick and deceitful above all else. And sin just dwells within our members. Paul describes it as just infesting our flesh. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He he talks about just sin raging in our members, warring in our members, in our body, that wants pleasure, that wants to be satisfied, that wants ease. And it never goes away, does it? You know, you never wake up going, I'm perfect. I've achieved perfection now. And the only people who say that are those who are lying. Sin has many lies. And as I looked at the text, I found six of them. And I just want to give you these six lies. These are the lies that this young man bought, which caused him to plunge himself into ruin. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the consequences of these decisions and the week following his repentance from those sins and consequences. So the first is sin tells you to be impatiently greedy. Look at verses 11 and 12. And he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And as we mentioned earlier, the younger son represents any sinner who eventually comes to repentance in Jesus Christ. The father represents God. And God, in a general sense, is the father of all men. And he gives to all men everything that they have. In Malachi 2.10, Malachi writes, Do we not all have one father? Has not one God created us? Paul, uh, when he's speaking to the Greeks at Areopagus, in the Areopagus in Acts 17.29, says, Beginning then, Uh, Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. We're all the children of God in in a creative sense, not a salvation sense, but a created sense. Why? Because God created Adam. Adam is the son of God. Literally. We are all descendants from Adam. So just like Jesus was the son of David, so we are all sons of Adam. Therefore, we're all Sons of God in the created sense. This is not to be confused with the universal fatherhood of God that some people teach that, you know, God is our father in a saving way. And therefore, we all get to go to heaven no matter what we do, because God would never cast anybody into hell. That is a lie. And the scriptures do not teach that. But the young man in our parable represents any person, really any person who plunges themselves into sin, which is everybody, but eventually repents. And we'll see that as we get through it. So the question really is this, because God is our father in creation and has given us life, has given us everything we have, a brain, gifts, health, a country, whatever, whatever we have, we have because God has given it to us by his grace. And the question is, are we going to take what our creator has given us and use it for his glory or not? It really, it just boils down to that. Are we going to live for the glory of God or not? Um, you know, you read, for instance, the parable of the talents or the parable of the minas are pretty much the same thing. Teach the same lesson. God gives to each one a certain endowment and then he expects us to use that for his glory 
But most do not. Most waste their life, squander their gifts on themselves. They chase after the world rather than the glory of God. They stuff themselves with sin rather than seek to please their creator. And this is the young man in the parable. This is the prodigal. The prodigal wants his inheritance now. Give me what is coming to me now. And in this, we see the the greed that has welled up within him and the impatience that greed produces and that he wants it now. As Greg read earlier, um, when inheritance time came, the older son would get two thirds, the younger son one third, but the younger son could never receive his property inheritance early. The father can choose to give inheritance early, but if the son once his inheritance early, he doesn't get the property nor the income from the property because the Jews said that stays with the father to support the father because it's an inheritance from the Lord. And it is only when he dies that an inheritance is then passed down to the son. So the son in asking the prodigal for asking for his inheritance early is despising his inheritance from the Lord. He is literally saying, Father, I wish you were dead and I could care less about my inheritance from the Lord. I mean, it is a shameful request. It's bold. It's arrogant. It's driven by greed. There's no tact or diplomacy. He just wants his as much cash as he can have. Now, forget my inheritance from the Lord, that portion of land given to my father, my father's father, ever since we came into the land. Forget that. I want cash, and I want it now. Give me whatever liquid assets I have coming to me. And he was impatiently greedy. Proverbs 20, verse 21 says, An inheritance gained hurriedly at the beginning will not be blessed in the end. And Proverbs 21.5 says the plans of the diligent lead surely to an advantage, but everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. And Proverbs 28.22 says a man with an evil eye hastens after wealth and does not know that it will come upon him. So we need to beware of impatient greed. Remember what James says, how he describes those people. He says, in James 4, 1, you lust and do not have, so you what? Commit murder. I want something, you're in my way, so I'm going to kill you. You know, have you ever wanted something, you know, some sort of gadget, something you don't even need? You know, you just want it because it's cool and everybody else has got one or you that's what's in your mind and it's popular or whatever. And you think, I, I need this thing. I need this thing. And I can't afford this thing. And then you go out and you get impatient and you buy it on credit. And then the payments come. And more payments and more payments. And by the time you've paid for it, you've spent five times what it is worth. Because you had to have it now. Now. To make you happy. But all those payments didn't make you that happy. And some people do that with sexual pleasures. You know, God created sexual pleasure for marriage to be enjoyed in marriage. He commands it. It's godly behavior in marriage. Outside of marriage, it's forbidden. But what happens? People lust. They're greedy. They get impatient. And they don't want to wait until they're married. And so, because they know better than God, they plunge themselves into all kinds of immoralities They defile their minds, they defile their hearts, 
get pregnant out of wedlock, have abortions, get rushed into marriages that they should never rush into. Eventually, when they do get married, they discover the consequences of their sin, their bad decisions, their lust and their greed, which they thought was going to bring them happiness, has not brought them happiness. They have grasped now what they should have had and enjoyed later. Matthew Henry in his commentary on Luke said, quote, the great folly of sinners and that which ruins them is being content to have their portion in hand now in this lifetime to receive their good things. They look only at the things which are seen that are temporal and covet only the present gratification, but have no care for the future felicity when that is spent and gone, end quote. You remember the. Story of the rich man and Lazarus. We're going to get there if we ever get to Luke 16. And you remember what happens when he's in hell and he's suffering and he wishes somebody could just dip the tip of their finger in water and place it on his tongue. And Abraham says, you had your good things in the life that just passed you by. But Lazarus, who had his bad things in that life is now being comforted here. So he was totally confused. He thought, if I could just grab the wealth now, if I could just live for myself now, if I could just have the world now, I got to have it. And so the young man wanting his cash Just ask his dad, just liquidate whatever you can to give me whatever I've got coming to me. And imagine this, you know, sometimes when you're tempted to have the things of the world, we just need to stop and we need to ask ourselves, okay, well, let's just say you do. You have unlimited wealth now. So what are you going to do with that? Well, let's just think about that a little bit. Okay, so you you buy yourself custom made gigantic homes all over the world. In the most premium spots overlooking cliffs and lakes and streams and rivers and mountain peaks, whatever. The most premium house. Okay, so now you've got a bunch of houses. You have your own private helicopters and jets to fly you around. You have your, you know, luxury cars and sports cars and limos with chauffeurs to drive you around. You have your own private chefs and maids and guards and accountants and assistants and pilots. You have all the clothes you could ever want, any of the famous brands, the most expensive brands. You have people who make clothes for you custom, just for you. And you've got shoes, lots of shoes. (laughs) If you're into shoes. You have personal trainers to keep you in shape and, you know, dietitians working with the cooks that feed you. Your money allows you to pay for any vice you could possibly want. You, You just you can buy it. Sex, drugs, parties, gluttony, whatever, just sinful, selfish indulgence. And of course, you also do many kind and generous things because after all, you don't want people to think that you're just nothing more than just a sinful glutton. So, you know, you build hospitals. You uh, clean up slums. You give to charities. You construct libraries. You give to humanitarian aid, do great acts of philanthropy. And people are constantly have you on their paper. Look at, you know, so-and-so gave this and they're giving you, you've got a whole wall of one of your gigantic offices full of plaques to all the good deeds you've done. Now, does that sound good to you? 
does that really sound good to you? I mean, if it does, then sin probably just has you by the throat. That would be hell before hell. Because you would be so miserable having the whole world and still not being satisfied. You can't, even if you had all the riches you could possibly want, you cannot satisfy your soul with it. It does not satisfy. It only brings little temporary pleasures and think how busy you would be, you know, approving things and talking to your secretaries and guards and upper management to whatever companies you had. And, and just, you know, when you get down to it, you can only drive one car, be driven in one car at a time. You can only sleep in one bed in one of your mansions at a time. You can only wear one set of clothes at a time. And you can only eat so much before you pop. And you really want to be like Howard Hughes? I mean, think about it. He's got more money than he, he knows what he could do. He's just got so much money. He's got so much money, he, he can't even imagine how much money that is. And he dies alone, paranoid, and miserable. He had access to any thing he wanted died miserable is that what you want that's what trying to swallow the world will get you so sin's first lie is be greedy be impatient and get it now secondly sin tells you not to care about others and we see this in the young man's request right dad i wish you were dead i don't care about the lord's inheritance to me give me the cash The young man doesn't care about his father at all. He doesn't care about his father's feelings, his father's reputation, the reputation of his family, his mother, his community. He could care less. He's only thinking about himself. Who cares if his father has to suffer? If he loses money, if his father has to go through great grief trying to liquidate all these assets so he can give him. Because the the father is wealthy, you can tell. He has many servants. But he wants... Things for himself. Selfishness will make me happy, he's thinking to himself. I don't care about you. I'm only thinking about me. Selfishness is antithetical to love, which always thinks of others and how to please others. Sin always thinks about self and how you please yourself. You remember in C.S. Lewis's chronicles of narnia series in the last book called the last battle when you know all the the animals are all getting together for this huge last battle and they're you know they need every last creature in person to help them fight the bad guys and uh, do you remember the dwarfs they had this little chant the dwarfs are for the dwarfs we're gonna fight you and we're gonna fight them because the dwarfs are for the dwarfs of course they get all get wiped out But that's really what the sinner is saying. The sinner is for the sinner. I am for myself. That's exactly opposite of what God says. In Romans 15 verses 1 and 2, Paul writes now, We who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. 
He says in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Take care of yourself, but don't be selfishly conceited. God tells us to live for others for their good. This is what love does. All those qualities of love mentioned in 1 Corinthians 13 are all things we do for others for their good. But sin says, forget other people, live for you. Third, sin tells you that the presence of mercy and grace in your life means there's no judgment coming for you tomorrow. Look at the middle of verse 12. So he divided his wealth between them. This is the father. He's dividing his wealth between his sons. The older son's going to wait, of course, till his father dies. The younger son gets his liquid assets, forfeits his inheritance from the Lord. And I thought about this. I thought, what does this teach us here that the father, why would God do that? If this, if the father represents God, why would God give to the younger son his inheritance early when his request was so shameful, so wicked, and when he was despising his inheritance from the Lord. Why would the father do that? Why would God give anybody that? Well, because he's God and he knows what's best. And sometimes he knows that by giving people what they want, it's like giving them some rope to hang themselves. I mean, if you think about it, anybody who ever sins only sins with what resources? The resources God gives them. We only sin with the resources God gives us. We sin with the body he gives us, the life he gives us, the mind he gives us. Whatever else he he has given us, we take his grace, we take his mercy, and we sin with it. This is all Edwards, one of Jonathan Edwards' major warnings in his... Great sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You remember, uh, as he speaks on Deuteronomy 32, 35, he, he preaches on that phrase, their foot shall slip in due time. And from this phrase, Edward notes that they were always exposed to destruction as one that stands or walks in slippery places is always exposed to a fall. Secondly, that they were always exposed to sudden unexpected destruction as one that walks in slippery places every moment liable to a fall. He cannot foresee one moment whether he shall stand or fall the next. And when he does fall, he falls at once and without warning. Third, another thing implied is that they are liable to fall of themselves without being thrown down by the hand of another. As he that stands or walks on slippery ground needs nothing but his own weight to throw him down. And fourth, that the reason why they are not fallen already and do not fall now is only that God's appointed time has not come. Edward says, we're all walking around sucking up God's grace. We breathe in God's grace. We live by God's grace. We enjoy whatever we enjoy by God's grace. We sin taking the grace of God, presuming upon the mercy of God, which is keeping us from hell, and in taking God's grace, in accepting his mercy, we rebel against him. Of course, this is a bad thing. And of course, what's really twisted is 
Sinners think that because they are able to live and not be under judgment, that there is no judgment. Because they've had so much grace and so much mercy given to them all their life. And Jesus never come back in glory. Jesus never judged the living and the dead. Obviously, I'm going to be fine. I'm fine. Judgment is not coming because it hasn't come yet. That's the lie that sin tells you. Edwards explains the truth saying your wickedness makes you as it were heavy as lead to tend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf on your healthy constitution and your own care and prudence and the best contrivance and all your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you to keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock were it not for the sovereign pleasure of God. The earth would not bear you one moment for you are a burden to it, end quote. And so it is. We are all a burden to God. Because we're just sucking up his grace when we live in rebellion against him. And God sometimes gives us what we want to either break us and bring us to repentance or so that it might be a form of judgment. You remember Alexander Dumas's classic, The Count of Monte Cristo, how he is just terribly betrayed by his friends. And one of his friends even takes his fiance. They cast him into prison. There he suffers. He meets a man trying to dig out who's a great intellect, who teaches him many things and gives him the secret of a treasure. He becomes very educated and extremely wealthy. And he goes to exact revenge upon his betrayers. But if you remember, he doesn't do it directly, does he? He uses his intellect and he uses his wealth to set up circumstances in their life so that they plunge themselves into ruin. And that's what God does to us sometimes. He gives us enough rope to hang ourselves. Trench says, quote, God, when his service no longer appears, a perfect freedom and man promises himself something better elsewhere, allows him to make the trail. And he shall discover, if need be, by saddest proof, that to depart from him is not to throw off the yoke, but to exchange a light yoke for a heavy one, and only a gracious master for a thousand imperious tyrants and lords, end quote. Do not believe sin's lie. The enjoyment of grace and mercy does not mean judgment is not coming. It guarantees that judgment is coming, but God is gracious and merciful. I mean, you don't need mercy If there's no judgment, you don't need grace. If there's no judgment coming, the very reality of their existence proves that they're needed. Paul says in Romans two, four, it is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. And Peter in second Peter three verses three through nine says, know this first of all, then in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming ever since the fathers fell asleep? All continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. You see, they have bought the lie, haven't they? They're saying, listen, everything's continuing at the same. Nothing's happening. We're fine. There's no judgment coming. That's just a big boogeyman. That's a myth. That's a threat. Just forget it. Enjoy your life. Plunge yourself into sin. Have a good time. It's a lie. It is a lie. 
when you assume that because you enjoy mercy and grace now, no judgment is coming. Peter goes on to say, for when they maintain this, that no judgment is coming. It escapes their notice that the word of by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded without a water. But by his word, God, by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. Kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And then he goes on in verse nine and says, the Lord is not slow about his promise. To come and judge the world and save the righteous as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, extending mercy and grace, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Don't think that God's patience and mercy means no judgment is coming. That is foolish. Grace and mercy will keep you out of hell right this moment. But the prodigal. He receives grace and mercy from his father. And then instead of using it to honor his father. He fourthly hides from accountability. Look at verse 13. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. Stop there. Why did he do this? To hide from accountability. I don't want to be around home. I mean, look at my mom harping on me. I got my brother harping on me. I got my dad harping on me. I got uncle Joe harping on me and all these people harping on me. What are you doing? How come you're doing that? Why are you sinning? Why are you wasting your inheritance? You are ashamed of your parents. You know, you would be ashamed of yourself. So it's like, you know, I don't need to I don't need any of that. I just want to sin and I want to relax in my sin. I want to enjoy it. And so I'm getting out of here so I can sin in comfort. You know, Jonah bought the same lie. I'm going to get away from God. I'm going to run away. Yeah, like you run away from God. And you know what? Some people run physically, you know, there, there are people who run into their sins physically. Uh, you know, they, they escape accountability by getting their own place so that no one can watch what they do at home when no one's around or they go to some seedy part of town or they travel around at nighttime. So there is the physical ways to get at those sins that God doesn't want you to have. But there's also mental ways. For instance, the atheist just tells himself there is no God. Of course, God says that he has put a knowledge of himself in everyone's heart and that the knowledge of him is known with every man. But men choose to suppress that truth and unrighteousness. So the atheist then runs from God by denying that God exists so that he can sin and do what he wants in comfort. The evolutionist does something very similar. He runs from God by saying... Lying to himself that everything that is came from nothing that was. And that nothing that was without intelligence produced everything that exists. That is psychotic stupidity. And yet millions believe that lie. That if you take nothing and you wait long enough, it produces everything. Ordered intelligence, designed and engineered things. As if chance were some sort of intelligent creative force and time were an intelligent creative force and and matter just popped out of nothing and life spontaneously generated, which, of course, all their books also say is an impossibility. Then there's the universalist who runs from God by saying, listen, everybody's going to get to heaven. God's a good God. He's merciful, grace and loving, gracious and loving. And listen, 
You have your way, I have mine. You can be a Buddhist, I'm going to be the Hindu, and you can be the Baptist, and listen, we'll all get there as long as we have some good intentions. Even if you have bad intentions, God is so loving and gracious, we're all going to end up in the good place and the sign, a better place after death. No, no, that's not true. And then there's the hypocritical professing Christian who runs from God by coming to church. By reading their Bible, by learning to speak all the Christian jargon, by going through all the regular Christian motions. And you look at them and think, you think they're saved, but they're running from God. They know they're running from God. They know their life is a sham. They know in their heart that it's just full of lies and deceits and false motives. And yet they feel good that by kind of hanging around the sheep, that they're probably a sheep too. No, they're not. They're just deceived and on their way to hell from the front of the pew. You know, that's it. And so the prodigal, like many in the world, ran from God physically, but others run mentally, choosing to believe various lies so that they can sin with comfort. Matthew Henry comments, quote, he was weary of his father's government, of a good order and discipline of his father's family, was fond of liberty, falsely so-called, but indeed the greatest slavery for such a labory, la- liberty to sin is see the folly of the young man, men who are religiously educated, but are impatient of the confinement of their education and never think themselves their own masters, their own men till they have broken all of God's bands in sunder and cast away his cords from them. And instead of them bound themselves with the cords of their own lust. Here is the original of apostasy of sinners from God. They will not be tied up to the rules of God's government. They will themselves be as gods, knowing no other God and evil than what themselves please. End quote. That is such a good quote. Because that just gets down to the nutshell. People want their sin. They want it now. They don't care about other people. And if there's a God, it irritates them. So you've got to get rid of God. So you become an atheist. You become an evolutionist. You become something. You run from God mentally or physically in an attempt to enjoy your sin without conviction. But the fact is, God sees everything, doesn't he? Hebrews 4.13, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom he have to do. So what that means is when you're here, God sees you. When you're there, God sees you. At night, God sees you. If you're in the depths of the sea, he sees you. You can't flee from his presence. He sees you at all times, every place. He knows your thoughts. He knows what you're going to do before you even do it. He catches you before you're born and all the sins you would ever commit. The whole thought of escaping accountability from God is just foolishness. It's a lie. Fifth, sin also says that it can make you happy. Look at the end of verse 13. There he squandered his estate on loose living. The phrase here in the Greek is very interesting. The squandered his estate with loose living. The squandered and loose living phrases. If you were to kind of put them together in a summary paraphrase, it would be like this. He cast like chaff into the wind his inheritance in order that he could recklessly pursue carnal indulgence. That's how it reads. It's, you know, like uh, you ever see one of those sprinters, you know, in the Olympics when they're just they're running just the very short races and they're just like running with reckless abandon and their chest are sticking out. That's how that's the idea. But towards sin where you just you're just so eager to sin you just 
<laughs> Throw yourself into it. That's what he did. Proverbs twenty-one seventeen says, He who loves pleasure will become a poor man, and he who loves wine or oil will not become rich. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 9, 3, The hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Oh, yeah. There are times when, you know, I've had parents come to me just saying, I don't know what's wrong with my my cute little obedient daughter. I mean, she's always been so obedient and she's always been so, so kind. And and just this week, we, we caught her sneaking out and doing drugs and drinking and, you know, sleeping with her boyfriend. It's like, what is wrong with her? Insanity in her heart. She has thrown herself with reckless abandon into the world. And we know that this guy, it just says this carnal indulgence. Verse 30 does say that he wasted his wealth on prostitutes. Oh, this is a huge one today. Pornography, multi-billion dollar industry. Billions and billions. It's one of the like the biggest businesses in America. Think about that. Pornography, one of the biggest biggest businesses in America. And what does it promise? Oh, temporary pleasure. Temporary pleasure. Yeah, all you got to do is defile your mind, defile your heart, keep going in. And, and many guys plunge themselves, not only spend all their money, but plunge themselves into great debt, just trying to find meaning in life from something that will only make them miserable. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says, quote, We are always heading for trouble whenever we value things more than people, pleasure more than duty, distant scenes more than the blessings we have at home. Jesus once warned two disputing brothers, take heed and beware of covetousness. Why? Because covet, the covetous person can never be satisfied no matter how much he acquires and a dissatisfied heart leads to a disappointed life. The prodigal learned the hard way that you cannot enjoy the things money can buy if you ignore the, um, the things that money cannot buy. This scene in the drama is our Lord's way of emphasizing that sin really does what sin really does in the lives of those who reject the Father's will. Sin promises freedom, but it brings only slavery. It promises success, but brings only failure. It promises life, but... The wages of sin is death. The boy thought he would find himself in this distant country, but he only lost himself. When God is left out of our lives, enjoyment becomes enslavement, end quote. That is so good, too. You just think that, you know, if I just get out there and just get whatever I want, I'm just going to be happy. No, you're going to be miserable. I mean, how many people have won or woke up from some drunken debauchery the night before with vomit all over him, wondering, how did I get here? Where am I? What did I do last night? And they complain and they gripe because their head feels like somebody swatted it with a bat multiple times. And then what do they do? They sober up and do it again. Is that insanity? Or somebody says, you know, I'm just going to try a little drugs here. I'm going to a little bit. This is kind of fun. And pretty soon it goes from fun to drugs become their hobby to drugs become their business. And they lose their business so that they might have their new business, which is drugs. And they lose their friends. They lose their marriages. They lose their reputation. 
They lose their health. They find themselves on the street all emaciated, coughing up blood. But they only want one thing. More drugs. That is insanity. That is insanity. To lose it all and then to think, you know, but if I only had more drugs, I'd make it better. Sin never brings lasting happiness. Thomas Watson, his work, The Mischief of Sin, writes, quote, Sin is such a trade that whoever follows is sure to break. What did Achan get by his wedge of gold? It was a wedge to cleave asunder his soul from God. And what did Judas get by his treason? He purchased a hangman's noose. And what did King Ahaz get by worshiping the gods of Damascus? They were the ruin of him and all Israel. Sin is first comical and then tragical, end quote. That's how it is, isn't it? Six, sin tells you to live for today and to not think about tomorrow. Look at verse 14. Now, when he had spent everything, I'll just stop there. That's what I did. As I was going through the text, I thought, what does this tell me? What does this tell me when he had spent everything? I thought, now, what did the, what did he do? Okay. He gets greedy. He gets covetous. He starts lusting for pleasure and freedom to sin without accountability. He goes to his father very brazenly, very shamefully, wickedly. He hurts his father, brings reproach upon him, says, liquidate whatever you can and give me my inheritance now. I'll forfeit my land inheritance so I can have the cash now. He does that. He goes to another country and throws himself into sin until everything is spent down to the last penny. You go, what was he thinking? He was not thinking. That's the whole point. He was not thinking about tomorrow. You know, he took the beer commercials advice, you know, and grab for all the gusto because you only go on once in life. You only go around once in this life, and then you have eternity after that. They, they don't tell you that in the commercials, by the way. I just wonder, Why don't they show some drunk guy in the gutter and say, go for all the gusto and then pan up on him? Recently, atheist Richard Dawkins, if you don't know who Richard Dawkins, he was like one of the, the number one proponents of atheism. And he got together with this other young gal, looked like she was in her teens, a budding comedian in London. And they thought, they saw, he saw on some some buses going around town, little Christian slogans, and it offended him. Because he doesn't believe there's a God. So he decided to get on a radio program and said, hey, if we can raise $8,500, we can put atheist slogans on 15 buses. So they received $200,000 in small donations. And so as of January 6th, 2009, nearly 800 buses have been driving around London with full length banners on them that say there's probably, and then in extra large pink letters, no God. So stop worrying about it. And enjoy your life. What, the, what does that ad say? It's saying live for the day. And don't worry about tomorrow. The apostle Peter of course gives us the opposite advice. 
Therefore, prepare, this is from 1 Peter 1, verses 13 through 16. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grudge to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice, completely on the future grace that is to be brought to you. That's Peter's advice. As obedient children, do not be conformed to this the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance, like the Holy One who has called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. In other words, be holy now in all your behavior and fix your eyes completely on the grace that is to be bought to you. You are to get your hope and your excitement and your anticipation and your longing and your desires in heaven, not this world. This is exactly opposite of sin for today and forget about tomorrow. Paul says pretty much the same thing in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and following. Do not be deceived. And you know, whenever he says that, do not be deceived, it's because so many people are. He says, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows in this life, this he will also reap, implied in the life to come. For the one who sows of his own flesh, implied in this life, will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows of the spirit in this life will reap eternal wards. You're either going to reap corruption to come or eternal wards to come, depending on how you live today. So it matters how you live today matters to God. It matters to you and where you're going to spend eternity in heaven or hell. So I think that the application of this is pretty clear, don't you think? Don't believe the lies that sin tells you. You know, are you running from God right now? Thinking that you can escape God, thinking that you can do little dark deeds and go little seedy places and do those things and no one notices and no one's watching because it's at home or it's at work or it's wherever. Or maybe you're running away from God in your mind, telling yourself, well, you know, I'm a Christian. I know my whole life is corrupt and evil and i do evil all the time and i don't read my bible i don't pray i don't serve i don't give but you know what i'm a christian that's running away from god in your mind that's not telling yourself the truth are you impatiently greedy to get at the things of the world has your love for others grown cold where you don't really care for others when it comes down to it you don't care for others oh you say you do but you really live like you don't Are you hiding from accountability? Do you really think sin will make you happy? If that's you this morning, there's a solution. And you know what that solution is. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. I mean, just see him there in heaven with his arms out. Come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. His nail-pierced hands and feet show you that he suffered and died for you. He was resurrected for your justification. He died on the cross. Listen, I will take the burden of your sin and guilt and the judgment you deserve upon me. I will give you my righteousness. Come to me. Believe in me. Trust in me. Receive me. And I will give you the free gift of eternal life. That's what Jesus says. And he will wash you whiter than slow. He will turn you into a new creature in Christ. You will be adopted into the family of God. We're getting there. And that part, it just, I'm almost melting down thinking about it. It is so great when the father receives him back. But you don't have to wait for three sermons from now. You can do it this morning. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for what we've learned about the deceitfulness of sin from this text. 
how sin deceives us and deludes us into believing lies that promise one thing, but deliver another. And father, if there's anybody here this morning that realizes that they are right now in the state of a prodigal, they're running, they're hiding. They're trying to find happiness and sin in the world and temporary pleasures. I pray that they would repent of that. You would grant them repentance. They would be broken in their hearts, that they would see that Christ died for them, that he rose for their justification so that they could escape the wrath to come. Help them to realize that time is short, that Jesus could come back at any moment or they could die and go to be before him at any moment. And father, I just ask that you would grant some repentance, help them to cry out for you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. May you do that for your own glory, by your own grace, because of your own goodness. And may all of us leave here on guard and not like David, slumbering even in our own houses, for temptation and evil lurks everywhere. And its desire is for us. Father, we thank you for what we've learned. Help us to apply these truths that you might be honored in everything we do. Amen. If you are a visitor with us this morning, please stop.